Hello, barbarians. Welcome back. It is I, Amit, your nuclear barbarian host. And today I have a great guest, Isaac Orr, who is a policy fellow at the Center of the American Experiment. He writes about energy and environmental issues, and he's co-authored a recent report on what SEP would do to Arizona. If you don't know what SEP is, hang in there, because we're going to get into that. But first, Isaac, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Emmett. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself before we get into this? I mean, I know that you're from Wisconsin, and I think you currently live in Minnesota. And as I said in my digest last week that this episode will be low-key about Midwestern excellence, I'd like to hear more about how you got to be where you are. Yeah, this is called uh, Revenge of the Flyover Country. Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure that was the <laughs> subtitle that we came up with. Yeah, I'm Isaac Gore. I grew up on a dairy farm in Wisconsin. So I'm a cheesehead through and through, right? So that's that's in my contract. But yeah, that's one of the reasons why I care so much about energy policy. It's, it's the reason I'm here today, frankly. I grew up in the same house my grandfather was born in in 1930. So it was it was an older house. And a lot of times in the summer, if the if it was a hot day, especially the cows would be drinking so much that it would draw down the water pressure in the well. So we didn't have any water on the inside of the house. So, you know, fast forward to my time in college, I'm in my environmental geology class with with Kent Severson, great professor, best professor at UW Eau Claire, just another Midwestern shout out, right? But we're talking about water pressure and well hydrology. And all of a sudden to me, this is very relevant. So I got very interested in the you know, the, the political aspect of the environmental decisions that we make every day. So I was a political science major with a souped up geology minor in at Eau Claire, basically just taking classes that most people wouldn't like sedimentology, stratigraphy, hydrogeology, geomorphology. And that led me to a, well, basically then I got a job at the state Senate in Wisconsin. I was there during the 2011 session with you know, Scott Walker's Act 10, you know, budget repair bill, basically reforming public sector unions. Then I worked at the Heartland Institute for about six years. And now I'm at uh, Center of the American Experiment, just doing energy policy. And it's a lot of fun. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't know that you were at Heartland. I've got a friend, I think he was there for maybe like a year, but now he's at a different economic think tank in, I want to say Austin. I can't remember which one though. So I'll have okay. to get back to you on that sure. one, but good friend of mine from Florida. All right. Sip of coffee. Done. Now let's open up on the report. So maybe you could break down for me and for less listeners, what SEP is like, what it wants to do, you know, just give us the basics there. Yeah, absolutely. So SEP is the clean electricity performance program. It's part of the $3.5 trillion reconciliation package that's currently being considered by Democrats in Congress, because the, the way that reconciliation works, you can get around the filibuster in the Senate. So it's a way of enacting what you want to get done through a budgetary process without needing any opposition uh, votes, especially if you have a 50 seat majority, right? So the, the the trick here is the reconciliation process is only supposed to be about budgeting. It's not supposed to be about policy. So understanding that they don't have the votes necessary in order to kill a filibuster in the Senate, the Democrats are trying to basically craft a de facto renewable or you know clean energy standard and carbon tax and put it into this giant $3.5 trillion package. 
and pretend it's only going to cost $150 billion. So that's kind of setting the table for it. The, the, you know, the exact nuts and bolts of it, I think are less important, but essentially what they want to do, it's a 4% mandate for, you know, quote unquote, clean electricity every year. And unfortunately, the way that they've structured the the SEP, the Democrats have, it has essentially outlawed any chance for building new nuclear power plants or carbon capture facilities on existing fossil fuel facilities, because they basically say you cannot average the emissions reductions over a period of years. So this is basically a wind, solar, and battery storage mandate that's going through. And you know, it's, it's a very expensive idea. It's very dangerous too, Mm -hmm. in terms of just providing adequate power when we need it. I mean, Texas, California, and Southwest Power Pool last winter should have been a big old, hey, maybe we should reconsider this. And the, the unfolding European energy crisis is also something that is not getting adequate press, in my opinion, in mm-hmm. mainstream news sources. You kind of want to have to see it. And if you don't want to see it, you don't have to, right? So yeah. uh, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance that's happening in the climate and energy debate in the United States, especially with Glasgow coming up. There's a lot of emphasis on showing that we're serious about climate change. When really all that's doing is making us less and less serious about the realities of our our energy needs every day. Right. Yeah. I mean, it seems like there is basically just a lot of crank stuff going on with this, I don't know what we call it, bill, budget item, you know, because as you said, reconciliation is a little bit different than, well, it's a workaround, the filibuster. Absolutely. Yeah. So... You guys, you and your co-author, Mitch Rowling, I want to give him a shout out here too. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Decided to take a look at what this would mean for Arizona, right? Because Joe Manchin uh, from West Virginia and Kristen Sinema have been from Arizona, have been catching a lot of flack for basically not supporting this. I know Manchin has been fairly vocal, though the mainstream press hasn't covered it, about what something like this would do to West Virginia, which would which is like 90% coal. Yep. It would like destroy his state, basically, and make the electricity really expensive on top of that, and really unreliable, and kill a bunch of jobs. So he doesn't have a lot of incentives to do this. Cinema, though she's been more tight-lipped about her opposition, I would assume is thinking similar things. So I wanted to ask you, like, what would this, like, what is Arizona's energy mix now? And what would it look like after SEP? Yeah. So Arizona went from being a very coal heavy state to a very natural gas heavy state. They've closed down a lot of the big coal fire power plants in the state. Uh, Navajo generating station up in the uh, northeastern part of the state was a native owned, is basically on the reservation. It was a mine mouth plant. It was really unwise, in my opinion, to shut it down. But California Mm -hmm. said that they weren't going to buy the power from it. So about 41% of Arizona's electricity comes from natural gas now. I believe 28%, I'm just going to pull this up in the report quick because I don't have it it memorized. 28% is nuclear power. That's the Palo Verde plant. Uh, Huge, huge plant, man. 3,900 megawatts in the country. It might be one of the biggest in the world, frankly. So I know that the Grand Coulee Dam is enormous too, right? I mean, 
it's, it's funny to me that everyone's talking about a green new deal, but nobody's talking about how green the original new deal was. So 21% of their electricity generation in 2019 was from coal. And then you had hydro with 5%, wind with 1% and solar with 5% in Arizona. So that's, that's the baseline out there. Yeah. Okay. Just a fun fact. I think California's about to get in some legal trouble with Arizona because California or because Arizona bought some power from California ahead of time for the summer, right? Because it gets really hot in Arizona. So they're yep. like, we want to have this. And then California was basically like, yeah, so our grid's falling apart. So FERC, will you just let us do take backs? Wasn't on that, that Oregon? Was that an Oregon facility that was routing the power through California and California just basically pirated it and said, no, you can't have it, Arizona? Uh, yeah, or something like that. And yeah, yeah, Arizona, something like yeah. Yeah, Arizona turned around and was just like, "Look, we already paid for this. Like, you can't yeah. do this to us." Yeah. Um, but FERC just let them, so I think they might be taking them to court. I'm not sure. It's been hard to find stuff on the story since I saw it pop up on my radar. Yeah. But obviously, there are some serious tensions between Arizona and California, and I think that those will increase as fragilization projects similar to SEP continue to succeed, at least within the state I live in now, California. So yeah, I mean, it just seems like with that type of shift in the energy mix, you're going to have a huge shift in reliability for Arizona. Do I have that right? Like, I don't think the battery storage can anywhere near, I mean, first of all, storage isn't generation, but right. I mean, what, like, what's their plan for that? Do they have one? Uh, so when you read some of the the literature that the you know proponents of the CEPP have put together, a lot of it is like the new workaround for the the lack of reliability for wind and solar. There's unreliable energy sources, right? It's to have the natural gas infrastructure in place, but seldomly use it. So it's basically, we are going to overbuild the grid with wind and solar to the extent that it can help meet our energy needs curtail the wind and solar when there's too much of it, and then fire up the gas plants when we need to in order to provide adequate reliability, because they know that even that kind of Rube Goldberg system is more realistic than storage. In our study, we did add storage to the grid in order to help meet the CEPP objectives, because you know a 4% annual increase in you know quote-unquote clean power, which is defined in the, the legislation as electricity that emits 0.1 ton of CO2 per megawatt hour per the per the statute. In order to meet that, you have to have storage in order to basically take the, you know, you have this big peak for solar during the day that exceeds the demand. In order to take some of that peak and use it later, you have to have the storage in order to meet these, these mandates. So we were talking something like 6,500 megawatts of so, or, so, or storage would be needed in order to keep the solar online, which is about five times more than is installed nationally right Whoa. now. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. So, and, you know, <laughs> I mean, we, we didn't say it was realistic to have that much storage. We just said, this is probably what you would need in order to do it. So <laughs> what we did was we looked at the energy information administration data. We don't need to get super in the weeds, but we just looked at, okay, what's the hottest day in Arizona over in 2019? Because that was like more realistic than 2020 because the, the load shapes are all wonky because of COVID. Yeah. It's like, how do we meet the, the peak electricity demand in Arizona? 
with solar and storage. And that's what we came up with. So that added something like 15 billion to the cost of this program over the course of 30 years, because we we take the long view on it because wind turbines only last for 20 years, solar Mm -hmm. panels last for 25 years. So you actually have to rebuild these dang things uh, before the end of the study period. And that adds additional cost. Whereas you know, Palo Verde is going to be turning out sweet, sweet carbon-free electrons for 80 years. Right. I mean, that's one of the things that's so wild about this. And I want to get into some questions later about like how this sausage gets made, because the idea that they never factor in replacement costs. I have yet to see one of these plans that does that, right? Where they're like, okay, and then we'll have to like re-up this and more because- Yep. If I mean, if we continue to grow, we'll have add, added like a terawatt or whatever, you know, to the grid. So we'll get into that in a bit. But because you've talked about a price tag on this, I want to yeah. talk about like what this would cost Arizona, because that's another thing you guys took uh, a sharp look at. Yeah. So implementing this program. So we didn't look at the subsidies or the penalties of the the bill. So the big thing that makes the CEPP a carbon tax, in my view, is there's a $40 per megawatt penalty if you don't meet your 4% renewable target. So that's basically a giant stick uh, with nails in it to uh, really try to, you know, force utilities to do this. And that's, I think, how they they pretend that it's only going to cost the taxpayer $150 billion, is they just assume that people aren't going to be able to meet this target and they're just going to be able to you know, charge companies uh, more money. But it would cost $120 billion to just achieve a 4% annual increase in renewable energy on Arizona's system. So that's $1,200 per year per electricity customer in the state. So we, we break it down like that because you know that obviously includes industrial customers, commercial customers, and residential customers all averaged into one. But I, I say this all the time, energy is the invisible ingredient in everything, right? I love that part of the report. I was like, yes, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. I've been saying that for like six weeks or six months trying to get it to catch on. So I'm glad you liked it. So if you increase the cost of energy, you increase the cost of everything because the definition of energy is the ability to do work. If you make doing work more expensive, all of the products of that work become more expensive. If you make energy less efficient, everything else becomes less efficient. So it's it's ridiculous to think that adding all this wind and solar to the grid is going to be increasing the, you know, the vitality of the economy because you've just made everything less efficient, right? It's just, it's silly Mm -hmm. in that regard. So if an industrial customer has an increase in their overhead costs, they're going to try their best to pass that on to the consumer. So that's why rather than look at what this would do to the residential rate and bill, which we've done in our previous reports, we just said, let's, let's look at this from a holistic thing. If if these industrial customers are able to pass on uh, these costs to consumers, it's going to be a huge burden on Arizona families. Yeah, exactly. So I was thinking about it like, you know, I've been pretty broke at times in my life. I hear you. Yeah. And, you know, whenever I see a bill like that, I think about how would I have budgeted that when I was like working at a bookstore, when I was working three jobs and still only making 17K a year. And it's pretty obvious that that would be more than just burdensome, right? If we're adding that to someone's bills. Oh, absolutely. You know, then imagine you have kids on top of that. I mean, it's just, right. 
you know, recovering lefty me can only see it as, you know, like basically a type of like class war on these people for some elite project that makes the country ultimately weaker. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I grew up low income too. Right. So on the farm, you never know where your next paycheck is coming from. Mm -hmm. And like, it's just really interesting to me that so many people who grew up in the suburbs, I have a real ax to grind with suburbanites. I think that they are the most- (laughs) <laughs> I so like for me like I think that they ha- they are so divorced from the the consequences of their actions because they're so affluent right like that mm-hmm. the suburbs have generally the highest income and they have a lot more margin for error and tolerance for bad policy that low income people in rural areas and low income people in urban areas simply don't have and mm-hmm. this is basically just a giant unfunded mandate for you know Prius driving or Tesla driving liberals to feel good about themselves. And man, that always like in Madison and Milwaukee, those people talk down to people that live in the rural parts of the state. And Mm -hmm. it's just like, you guys are idiots. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, so I'll put it this way as a product of the suburbs. It is true. And Illinois. And Illinois. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For Um, the listeners, there's a big Wisconsin-Illinois rivalry. Right. Yeah. And on top of that, I'm Jesuit educated, which makes me even less trustworthy. Sure. Um, (laughs) But... um, the way that I look at it at being a product of that type of environment is if you say to someone from the suburbs, well, it's just because you're wealthy, they immediately get their hackles up because no mm. one wants to hear that, right? Right. So I would, not that I don't want to offend them, but I would like to say it in a way that maybe other people might hear or think sure. differently. Oh, that's what, fine. Like what yeah. does that wealth mean is another way to say it. And yeah. it is when you're in the suburbs, it is this, if everything is amazon primed to every store you go to right like there's it's totally a decontextualized existence even if you have one that has like a more bustling downtown area or whatever like it is as if there is like some sort of video game respawning element at the jewel osco yeah. That just makes the beef appear at night when you're yes. not there. Yes, that's <laughs> no. great. I love that. You know, like that's how it feels. And so it's really hard to understand why people would be resentful of plans like this and what freaks them out about plans like this. I mean, I'd also say that I'm sure if I drove through the town I grew up in, Elmhurst, I would see way more solar panels on roofs than were ever there when I was growing up because those have come into vogue. And that is how people will see it as everyone doing their part. And so they have an alleged familiarity with the technology that will make them think that people who are resistant to it are just ignorant and don't understand its benefits, despite the fact that it's basically feed-in tariffs yeah. helping them get those solar panels on their roofs, right? They're picking everybody else's pocket with the solar panels. Yeah. It is it is just state-sanctioned stealing from everyone else. And yeah. God. I've, I've made a lot of people really upset when I said that um, if you want to put solar panels on your roof, that's fine, but you should be forcibly disincorporated from the rest of the grid if that's Amen. what you want to do. <laughs> Amen. And somebody was just like, we're just trying to help with demand. And I was just like, yeah, you're creating balancing problems. And like, you're, especially if you're getting a net meter, you're getting the wholesale rate instead of the retail rate. Like if you Mm -hmm. wanted to pay somebody the avoided fuel cost for 
the solar panel, pay them two cents for every kilowatt hour. I guess I can get behind that. It's still dumb, uh, <laughs> but it would never pencil out. So solar, electric cars, all that stuff, it's just subsidies to the wealthy paid for by, you know, Joe lower and middle class. And it's, it's disgusting. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, okay, so let's get into some of this, right? Like one of the things that you brought up, and this is something that as I've started to learn about this stuff, I'm always like, how are they not thinking about this? But you guys have a whole part in the report where you go into load balancing. So I'd, first I'd like you to explain what load balancing is. And then I wanna talk about like, why doesn't something as what seems essential as load balancing end up in a plan like SAP? Like, why isn't sure. it thought of? Yeah, so Mitch Rowling and I did a lot of work on this. We built on the uh, levelized cost of energy from existing resources from the Institute for Energy Research. Tom Stacy did a great job on that report, but we still felt that we really, everyone talks about the levelized cost of energy in the, in the energy world. And they think that that's gospel. And really it's a metric that is outdated and not very useful. They're like, oh, well, wind and solar have the lowest levelized cost of energy. We should be putting more of it on the grid because it'll lower costs. But that metric was developed when everything that we put on the grid could be turned on and off when you need it, right? So the the cost of energy in under that metric is not good at conveying the value that those power plants are uh, adding to the grid, right? So what Mitch and I wanted to do was account for the cost of intermittency of wind and solar and put it in a bar chart and say, this is the, you know, the hidden cost of wind and solar that you're imposing onto the electric grid. So when we do a levelized cost of energy bar chart in our reports, we always add the transmission, the additional property tax, the additional utility profits, and the cost of maintaining that natural gas infrastructure that you need to build and maintain in order to provide electricity when the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing. So I just feel that, you know, this is this is kind of our baby. We feel it's kind of our creation. It is, you know, very much a, you know, succession to the IER report. So I want to make sure that they don't feel like we're cutting them out of the, the credit circle here. But yeah, I think that the reason we don't hear about load balancing is because it isn't very convenient. Like it kind of undermines the whole narrative of wind and solar are the cheapest thing we can possibly build and nuclear is too expensive. So let's build more wind and solar. If you have to account for all of these innovations efficiencies that it's introducing to the system. So yeah, that's that's load balancing 101, folks. Yeah, no, I love that. I mean, to me, that's sort of what feel, it makes me feel insane when I'm reading these things. I just want people who aren't viewing this on YouTube to appreciate Isaac's extremely based Green Bay travel mug he just drank from. And you also can't see it, but there is half of a picture of Brett Favre in the background. I could only afford half of it. But like infrastructure plans without thinking about reliability or out without factoring the costs of how, like, I, how does this happen, man? Like, how does this sausage get made? Like, how is this acceptable? I know that this is probably a dumb question, but like, it boggles my mind. That's, that's a very good question. So there's so much pork in both the infrastructure bill and the reconciliation bill, right? So we're talking something like $4 trillion of new mm -hmm. government spending that's being advocated for. 
I think that they're looking to fund the transmission expansion that's necessary, partially through the infrastructure bill, partially through reconciliation. Because if you have, I think it's something like a 50% increase in, or a grid powered by 50% renewables, you will need at least a 20% increase in the amount of transmission that is in to go higher, you need even more. It's exponentially more. So the more you rely on renewables, it becomes exponentially more expensive and difficult to rely on that. I have a chart in some of my other work that shows the polar vortex of 2021. Mm -hmm. We just call them polar vortexes. It's winter storm Yuri in Texas, right? So for us, it's like a bad week in Minnesota. (laughs) So the, I, I compared the output of a single coal plant in North Dakota, the Coal Creek station, it's 1150 megawatts of, you know, sweet, sweet dispatchable power. And Uh, it's a mine mouth plant. It burns lignite coal. There's no supply chain issues. If they if they need more power, they just throw more in the boiler. It's, yeah. it's great. <laughs> shovel uh, it in there. Yeah. And I compared that to the hourly load profile or the amount of electricity that wind was generating on an hourly basis during the polar vortex in the Midwest. And that little coal plant, 1100 megawatts was producing more electricity than the 22,000 megawatts of wind installed in the entire mid-continent independent systems operator system, right? For several hours, right? It wasn't a lot, but there were times where 1,100 megawatts of installed capacity was producing more than 2,200 megawatts. I almost said thousand, but that would have been too many zeros. So, So like this idea that we can rely on wind and solar in any capacity is really just not true. It's it's irresponsible. And I don't even remember the point. I just wanted to talk about that graph because it's really fun. Yeah, no, I, I, I love that graph. No, it was basically like, I was curious about how exactly something like SEP comes to be. So I think mm, part yeah, of what yeah, you're yeah. driving towards is also that there's just so much in here in these bills that nothing gets due diligence might've been part of what you were pointing Thanks for out. saving me. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that the, the main problem here is that, you know, I think that in, for like the standard policy, the three things that you need for electricity is you need reliability first, mm-hmm. affordability second, and then third can be carbon free, mm-hmm. right? So that's the, that's the order in which everything needs to happen. Unfortunately, what's happened is that order has been reversed. So people are prioritizing carbon-free first, affordable second, and reliability is a distant third in the consideration of like the, the Jesse Jenkins folks, the Leah Stokes folks, and you know the congressional you know, members who are supportive of these policies. And that's fundamentally how we get all of the, even beliefs that something that's this insane can be not only acceptable, but a positive force for good in our, in our universe. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you want to talk about contempt, there's some democratic politician who said like, well, why don't we just cut West Virginia out of the bill because they're economically irrelevant? And I was like, I mean, yeah, you could probably get Manchin on board if you did that. I mean, that would also like make you have to admit that the emperor has no clothes. So, but I was like, you just hate these people, man. Like you can't stand these people or their representatives. It is, I didn't fully understand that having grown up, like I said, in the suburbs, but also up north until I was like dead broke living in Tallahassee, Florida. Sure. And I realized like what friends of mine who had never been south of the Mason Dixon 
like really thought of the type of people I lived and worked with every day who were I, very good people, you know? And I was like, man, like there is just a lot of ax grinding <laughs> going on here among these things. Like the regional and class tensions in America are like very real. They're like palpable at a policy level. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, we don't need to get too far off the, the farm here, but I think as we don't have a large geopolitical enemy to focus on. So we've decided to pick nits with ourselves. And, mm. you know, everyone thought that the fall of the Soviet Union was going to be this great era of American unification in the 90s. I don't know if we would consider the 90s a great time. The music there was pretty atrocious. That's when I grew up, right? So like, I feel like I can, I can say that, but yeah, over time, I think 9-11 did a lot of, it, it made the country more unified than it probably would have been otherwise for an mm -hmm. artificially long period of time in terms of, you know, I think everybody was basically pretty pro-America, but now it seems like there's, there's a whole cottage industry of academics who say like, oh, well, you know, this country has actually never been very good while at the same time dismissing the human rights abuses that are happening in solar panel manufacturing facilities over in Western China. I mean, mm -hmm. they've enslaved millions of Muslim Uyghurs and forcing them to build solar panels in factories powered by coal, yet somehow that's better and more morally acceptable than just utilizing West Virginia coal to provide 14,000 high paying jobs for West Virginia folks who need the revenue. Right. And who don't deserve to have their community lives vaporized like overnight. Absolutely. Right. You know, I mean, I think that there's a definite lack of regard there. Whether it's external enemy or something going on, it does feel like there is an entrenched feeling of fracture right now. And it seems difficult to work around that. I wanted to ask you some questions about nuclear just openly and very candidly, sure. because I mean, we're now like departing from this excellent report, which by the way, everybody will be in the show notes. It is also in my first weekly digest in the Substack from last week. By the way, people that might recognize Isaac's talking point of reliability, affordability, and then low emissions as a treat. From my latest piece, What Weightlifting Taught Me About the Grid, and I owe that to him. He is the one that introduced me to that talking point, and now I say it literally all of the time. It's always so. fun to see your kids grow up and go <laughs> on to do great. I love all my children. Um, so moving on, I wanted to ask you, like, I am obviously like in the tank for something like a nuclear new deal, because I think that's the only way to get the standardization that we would need to like economically build out nuclear right like it's about experience with reactor type not reactor innovation right it's an economy of repetition where like i know that you like nuclear what is do you have a vision of building out more of it could you get on board with something like that do you have problems with that that i'm not seeing because of my priors i just want to pick your brain I do have hesitation towards some sort of broad scale, you know, nuclear new, you know, for me, I'm all about that reliability, affordability, and then carbon free, right? Mm -hmm. So the reason I like nuclear is that it is the most realistic way to get number three while still honoring the obligations that I think we have with number one and number two. Mm -hmm. So one of, I mean, that's really the reason why Mitch and I modeled the cost of SEP without Palo Verde. Which we didn't huge, talk about by the that. way. Yeah. yeah. So the the cost of the program more than doubles if you get rid of the 3,900 megawatts of uh, nuclear power that Arizona has with the Palo Verde plant. 
And we did that because we knew that was kind of a wink and a nod to our friends in the nuclear energy space and advocates on that, just because we, we understand the importance of these existing low carbon mm-hmm. plants because they're lower cost than a lot of other things, right? So I know that some people in the nuclear advocacy space got mad when the Trump administration talked about the importance of fuel secure resources and lumped coal and nuclear together. But I think that that's actually it's just factually correct. It is. It is factually correct. Right. So Meredith talks, Meredith Anguin, I'm sure that all the all the listeners of this podcast know her on a first or first ba- or name basis. But, you know, I think that natural gas is a great fuel, but it's not the best tool for every job. So mm-hmm. I think that keeping our existing coal plants open as long as they are that it makes sense to run them is something that we should be doing. If at the end of their useful lifetimes, it makes sense to replace them with new nuclear technology. I think that that's that's a win for everybody, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm not in favor of a forced transition to carbon-free, like a a green nuclear deal would probably do. I just don't think it makes sense to destroy those, you know, those assets that are perfectly fine. And you know, if you ran your social cost of carbon calculator, like uh, you would see that in the end, it would probably not make any meaningful difference in terms of cost. And if you typed it into a climate change, you know, calculator, it would be 0.0000004 degrees C difference by the year 2100 when, you know, most of us won't be around anymore. So mm-hmm. I think that I'm for standardizing the nuclear power plants, getting them to be built in a timely fashion. Mitch and I model the cost of the APR 1400 in some of our reports, because we think the South Koreans have done a really good job of yeah exporting their nuclear technology. Fantastic job. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why we, we model that one. But you know, who, what kind of appetite is there for building a huge nuclear power plant like that in the United States when we have wholesale energy markets that are like hopelessly broken by renewable energy subsidies that don't account for the lack of reliability. So that's, that's kind of a long-winded way of saying I probably wouldn't be, I, I would be very concerned about the cost of a green nuclear deal. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, if we want to have a, a gradual policy where nuclear can compete with other energy sources on an economic playing field mm-hmm. while still delivering the same, you know, reliability, which is important, right? Like you can't pretend wind and solar are, you know, are cheap when really they're, they're not, but I'd be, I'd be for a gradual transition with the caveat that it's gotta be lower cost because you, every, you have to have the lowest cost source of energy in my book in order to have like this ethical transition. Right. And that's why I support nuclear as a, you know, yeah, it's, it's cheap electricity. It's currently illegal to build a new nuclear power plant in the state of Minnesota. So we've been- Same in West Virginia. Yeah. So we've been all about legalizing new nuclear power. We want to have a you know level playing field for all energy types. But I think that the energy density of nuclear, you know, the fact that a pencil eraser's worth of uranium can generate the same amount of electricity as a half a ton of coal, like- mm-hmm. That's nuclear is the only thing that can be lower cost in fossil fuels theoretically in the future. And that's why I support it to the extent that we can get that working and actually make electricity cheaper than it is today using the technology. Giddy up. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely hear those concerns. Like one of the things that I think about, and I think I was talking about this on the, the, I was on decouple and I was like, you know, there seems to be a deal to broker between, I mean, most coal is in red states. Right, I was taking a look at the grid, and that seemed, or it seemed to be, there's a lot of that. Sure. Like the overlap yep. of that is is pretty large. I mean, it's not like one to one, you know, or anything like that. 
But I was like, well, it seems like conservatives aren't terrified of nuclear and often support it. It seems like there could be a deal to be brokered between coal plants about to die off and saving and then expanding that workforce through the creation oh, of absolutely. nuclear. I mean, that's an attractive deal to me. That seems like a lot of people win with very low downside in that scenario. Oh, yeah. So Excel Energy is kind of the worst offender when it comes to pretending wind and solar are going to be able to power the grid. Mm -hmm. By the uh, way, they are no longer considered green um, by the S&P. Really? As of like a couple days ago. Okay. That's, neither, that's neither is PG&E. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Apparently, like imposing energy shortages on your folks isn't degrowth enough for them, huh? I think it's because of the the degrowth just led to more natural gas. I think that's why they got yeah. taken off the green. Yeah, yep. that makes sense. But there's a big old coal plant in Sherburne County, Minnesota. We call it, and I think it's something like 2,200 megawatts. I'd need to look it up, but they want to replace it with... Uh, 400 or two 400 combustion turbine plants, one in North Dakota, one in another part of the state and a bunch of wind and solar. And we formally intervened in this. We said, look, you should run these plants until they can't run anymore. And you mm -hmm. should be looking at adding new scale technology because Excel signed this memorandum of understanding. They might be providing services to uh, new scales, nuclear department. So, you know, that's, that's one of the things we advocate for all the time. Like if you want to have these, you know, policies that increase the cost of electricity, which is what basically any attempt to reduce CO2 does, right? It mm -hmm. almost necessarily increases the cost of electricity. But let's do it in the smartest way possible and not like double down on the dumbest way possible. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think that the practicality like just legislative practicality, budgeting thing of we can't just increase people's bills by building out new nuclear technology is a strong talking point. And that's something that's going to need to get figured out. Like, what are we talking about here? Because to have a successful nuclear program, I think we do have to have some sort of centralization of the process. So I think that's a tough nut to crack. I'm also curious to see what this winter will bring and what it will convince people of that they haven't been able to be convinced of before because the heating bills are about to get very extreme, especially where you are, I imagine, with all the fuel shortages going on. Not that nuclear is thermal, but you'd certainly have fewer shortages if you weren't burning all of that up to do other things. Exactly. So we talk about this a lot too. The, the energy mix in Minnesota is mostly nuclear now. I, I believe natural gas is second. I'd have to look at it. Mm -hmm. It kind of just depends on the weather, right? In any given year, but we still have a lot of coal capacity online, but because natural gas has been cheap, they've been using it less frequently. But if you have a situation, we had Winter Storm Uri added $350 to every Centerpoint Energy customer's heating bill for that week, right? Because there was such a huge spike in the demand for natural gas and production in Texas obviously froze up, right? So maybe mm -hmm. you can argue, well, that's a black swan event because you know the infrastructure in Texas won't always simultaneously freeze at the time that you need it most. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I think ERCOT might find a way for that to remain true. Yeah. yeah. Let's, forms, rightly. let's shut off the electricity to the natural gas producing fields and uh, see how it works out for us. <laughs> but 
it is really just kind of a snake eating its own tail at some point. If you're going to take all these coal plants offline and you have a situation where the wind isn't blowing and Excel refuses to turn their wind turbines up to full capacity, right? <laughs> I don't know why they do that. I don't understand why all these renewable advocates and utility companies don't just turn up their wind turbines when the wind isn't blowing very I, hard. I, I also don't know why they don't have a, a night mode for solar yes. panels. Yes. <laughs> Like, I swear to God, if you poll tested that, it would be off the charts supported. I want to yeah. start like the the very cynical uh, part panels. of me. Yes. Wants to start a GoFundMe for it and just take all the money and retire in Mexico. But um, <laughs> I won't do it. It's not right. But part of me thinks about it yeah. for sure. But if you have a situation where you have become increasingly dependent on natural gas for electricity generation and home heating, that lends itself to scarcity. And as Europe mm. is learning, when like commodities markets do not operate in a linear fashion, right? It's not like there is a linear and predictable price increase for every incremental increase in usage. So like as you get towards the end of that supply, the cost skyrockets. It increases mm -hmm. exponentially in order to encourage marginal producers to enter the market, right? So that's something that the bureaucrats at the you know, public utilities commissions around the country don't seem to understand. So I do think that this winter is going to be very bad. There's another uh, aspect of this that is not discussed enough, but a lot of the coal plants in the Midwest don't have enough fuel for the winter. They basically have burned more fuel than they thought they were going to through the summer because natural gas prices have increased. Yeah. So there's a giant pile of coal at the Sherburne County plant that I talked about earlier, normally, but that pile is about half the size that it normally is. Oh, no. And basically the coal produ producers can't ramp up production fast enough to meet this new demand. And that's the case throughout the country. So we are going to be in a lot of trouble potentially this winter, whether that manifests in rolling blackouts, I don't know, but mm -hmm. prices are definitely going to be higher than they were in the past, just because we have basically undermined confidence in the ability or financial confidence in the coal industry. So they don't have the tools they need in order to increase production anymore because ESG goals, Obama era mandates on shutting down coal-fired power plants, making it more difficult to mine, not allowing federal leasing of coal plants on you know federal lands, have basically restricted the supply artificially without properly addressing the demand. And that's the worst thing about renewables. You know, for the last 10 years, like, and I will admit, I feel a lot of schadenfreude right now about oh, sure. the, yeah, the energy sure. crisis, because for the last 10 years, all I've gotten is hate mail from lefties talking about how like, you're killing the fracking the guy on Twitter, you're killing my grandchildren, you're a bad person. And now, God, boy, howdy, am I loving this? Because the unreliable chickens are coming home to roost because everyone pretended that you could shut down these you know, dispatchable energy sources and replace them with wind and solar. And we're learning a very painful lesson. That's not how it works. That's not how physics works, which physics for the folks at home is the most fundamental of all the sciences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it's that old quip that if, if there's a prefix before whatever science you studied, it's not real science. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> right? absolutely. You know? Yeah. No, I think that I'm wondering if we aren't re-entering some sort of remix of the 70s crisis. I mean, obviously it's not the same as with like OPEC and stuff like that, but mm -hmm. I just mean like uh, a global rethinking of energy, energy policy, and basically like 
I would also argue like a rethinking of like what exactly the nation state's role is and how it interacts with its own energy. Right. Like I think people, you know, there's this poet I like Nick Flynn who says, we think we can think whatever we want. We think we can think cut out her tongue and then ask her to sing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've been doing the same thing with how we consider energy sovereignty, thinking that we can treat energy and electricity like just another commodity rather than like these plants and this fuel is putting like the infra and infrastructure. Like you said, it's the invisible cost and everything, you know, because when it goes wrong, it, it, it spirals, right? The problems cascade. We're going to see that in Europe. Like as soon as they started being like, we're not going to do ammonia. And <laughs> the Dutch said that I was like, oh no, <laughs> like yeah. you grew up on a farm. Yeah. You yeah. know what a problem that is. Absolutely. You need the nitrogen based fertilizer because turkey dung, which is the organic alternative is not nearly as good for the plants. It just doesn't produce the same yields. So yeah, I mean, because it's the invisible ingredient in everything, everything is about to become a lot more expensive and a lot less available. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, on that cheery note, I think we're going to sign off. Isaac, thank sure. you so much for joining me. This was a, a blast. We'll have to do it again sometime. Yeah, thanks for having me. Sorry if I ranted too much. No, it didn't feel like too much to me. Um, so, guys, thanks for listening. Uh, if you like the episode, please share it uh, wherever you listen to it. If you can, give it some stars, give it some reviews, and stay sharp, stay strong, and stay radiant.